Have you ever wondered how nutritional science got it so wrong for so many years? Well, on this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we are honored to bring on award-winning science and health journalist, Gary Tobbs, to discuss the history of nutritional science. We have this discussion all the time where I say, well, yeah, I'm convinced I'm right, but every quack is convinced he's right. That's the defining aspect of a quack, right? They're never skeptical about it. They're never, you know, and then he says, well, yeah, but the difference is we are right. And it's like, yeah, I think so, but that, <laughs> so you, there's this famous line uh, from Richard Feynman, the physicist, that I quote in most of my books, which is, the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate one billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, it is an honor to bring on a leader in the space of nutritional science, Gary Tops, who is obsessed with bad science. And on this episode, we get into his previous books, which were titled The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, Good Calories Versus Bad Calories. And then we dive deep into his book, The Case for Keto. I was very excited when I heard he was writing a book about the history and science of ketosis, and I was honored to receive an advanced copy of the book, and it's such a great book. We dive deep into why he wrote that book. We talk about being in ketosis long-term. Gary interviewed 120 doctors and practitioners from all across the world, and he put this book together based off of their research and all of the interviews he did with them. And then we get into, I had to ask him the question of calories in versus calories out because he is one of the thought leaders in that space. And you're gonna love what he has to share about where that originated and why it's so flawed when we focus on calories in versus calories out. So I can't wait to bring Gary Tobbs on the show with you shortly. Before I bring him on, I wanna take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from BKYDBD, titled Best Health Podcast. Keto Camp is amazing. It has been foundational for a guy who is new to keto and intermittent fasting. Possibly, however, the most important thing to know is it isn't a podcast that only talks about keto issues. It includes important information and interviews from all varieties of standard and alternative medicine. Information for healing the body, mind, and soul. Thanks, Ben. No, thank you. I, I am so glad you're listening to the show. Welcome to this world of keto and intermittent fasting. It's going to serve your body so good. So I am so excited for you. And I'm grateful you see that we are a well-rounded podcast. Yes, primarily, we talk about these ancient healing strategies, keto, 
fasting, but we always sprinkle in other areas of life because health is a multifactorial approach. It's multi-therapeutic, and that's the way we need to view it. And thank you for leaving that rating and review. It helps the show grow and expand. And thank you all Keto Campers for listening and helping the Keto Camp Podcast achieve a top 15 status here in the United States alternative health category. If you haven't left the show a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute right now to pause the show and leave that rating and review. It really does help. And when you do so, take a screenshot of that and send that email or the photo to support at ketocamp.com, camp with the K, and put your shipping address in the United States. And what we will do, I will sign a paperback copy of my best-selling fasting book and mail it out to you as a thank you, United States only. So please go ahead and do that. Honest rating and review helps the show grow, helps us reach more lives. Well, all right, let's dig into bad nutritional science, and then we'll get into the case for keto with Gary Tops. Gary Tobbs is an award-winning science and health journalist. He is the co-founder and director of the Nutrition Science Initiative. He is the author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and a former staff writer for Discover and Correspondence for Science. He has written three cover articles on nutrition and health for the New York Times Magazine, and his writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, Esquire, and numerous best-of anthologies, including the best of the best American science writing in 2010. He has received three Science and Society Journalism Awards from the National Association of Science Writers and is also the recipient of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research. Gary Tobbs, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. It's great to have you here. Ben, thank you for having me. It's, it sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. The audience is in for a treat. Uh, I know your story, and you've been a big influence on my life and my work, but could you share your story on how you got involved with what you're doing today? Okay, so I was a science journalist who was obsessed with um, bad science. My first two books were about researchers who had discovered non-existent phenomena and lived to regret it. So this was sort of, this was my area of study. It was my obsession. I had a lot of fans in the physics community who liked my work and sort of uh, liked the idea that some of their colleagues could be taken down by a journalist if the need arose. And they suggested at one point that I look into research in public health because the work in public health, they said, was terrible. And since I was interested in bad science, they said, why don't you... Uh, why don't you write about that? So I did, and I started off, and the work, it's just a real disconnect between what we think of as re medical research, public health research. I mean, you see it now blowing up with the COVID story all the time, but it's nowhere as bad as it is in nutrition, uh, obesity, chronic disease research, in part because when we could talk about this, but it's just it's virtually impossible to do the kind of experiments necessary to really test your ideas and your know, sciences, hypothesis and test. So in the mid 90s, I went into public health. I did some award winning articles for the journal Science. Towards the late 90s, I sort of stumbled into the nutrition space. Literally, I was, I 
I needed a paycheck one day. I was a freelancer. I was a correspondent, but that's a glorified freelancer. And I was living in LA by the beach, having a good time. And I emailed uh, my editor and I said, do you have a story that I could cover quickly and turn over quickly? And um, that'll give me a paycheck. And then I could pay my rent and go back to the beach. And he said, uh, there was a story that just came out. The Dash Diet had just been was about to be published in the journal, New England Journal of Medicine. And the Dash Diet is this dietary approach to stop hypertension. The story had been leaked to science. I didn't know anything about this background, but it had been leaked to science in advance because here was a dietary approach to lower blood pressure that had nothing to do with the sodium content of the diet. And I didn't realize there was a debate about whether or not salt caused low blood pressure. So I'm doing this story. And the way you did it as a journalist is you, you know, for a one page story, you need three or four sources. It's a thousand words you're going to write up. It's literally a day and a half's worth of work for, you know, a thousand dollars. And I get a list of sources to interview from the whoever it was who leaked the story to science. I caught the first one and she's the president of the American, former president of the American Heart Association. And she said she can't talk about this study because she'll lose her funding. And I say, but it's a diet study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Nobody's gonna lose their funding if they talk about it to a journalist and she refuses to talk to me. And then I interview this other guy who starts yelling at me that there's no controversy over salt and high blood pressure. And I say, but I'm not calling about salt and high blood pressure. I'm calling about this diet study in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he continues to yell at me about salt. And I get off the phone and I call my editor and I say, I had this American Heart Association president refused to speak to me, even off the record about the study. And this other guy yelling at me that there's no controversy over salt and high blood pressure. There must be a controversy about salt and blood pressure that we know nothing about. And I spent the next nine months of my life reporting that. And it turns out that the evidence that salt causes high blood pressure, you could lower your blood pressure in any meaningful way by eating a low salt diet was terrible. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that, one of the five worst scientists I'd ever interviewed. And my second book was called Bad Science. And it was about the scientific fiasco called Cold Fusion. And I had thought in doing that, I had interviewed the worst scientists in the world. But it turned out that here was a nutritionist who was easily as bad as any of those and was claiming not just to get Americans on the low fat diet we were eating, but on the low salt diet. I mean, not just on the low salt diet, but on the low fat diet. Jeez. So I got off the phone with him. I called the editor at Science. I said, look, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. One of the worst scientists I ever interviewed just took credit for this low fat diet we've all been on. And if he's in any way involved, there's got to be a good story there. And it turned out he was significantly involved, and there was a great story. So I did the salt piece and the fat piece, both won awards for science. It took me nine months and a year, the two pieces. And then I did this legendary New York Times Magazine story, infamous, called What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? And that got me a large enough book advance to spend five years on my first book. Actually, it paid for four years. <laughs> but writing books being what it is, I still took five. Anyway, and that was it. It's I've been stuck in this nutrition space since. And it's just 
it's not just that the science is bad, like when there's bad science in other fields, which there always is, it doesn't actively harm people. In medicine, people are actively getting harmed, like you were getting the wrong advice. I was getting the wrong advice. We were trying to fix our metabolic issues and we couldn't do it because we were being told the wrong thing. So now I just keep hammering on that and exploring different aspects of it. And you do a great job at shining a flashlight on some of the dark science out there. And I imagine that when you start doing this and, and uncovering some of the real science and putting it out there for the public to read, there's going to be some heat that you're going to take. There's going to be some arrows that you're going And I've seen you on actually some interviews take some of that heat. So what has that been like? And has that slowed you down at all? It slows you down momentarily. I won my first when that New York Times Magazine piece came out. I so what if it's all been a big fat lie? The idea was that from the mid seventies, roughly through two thousand, we'd been thinking that dietary fat makes you fat and causes heart disease. And um, there was a very compelling story that it's not the fat that makes you fat, but the carbs, and that it's the carbs that cause heart disease. And the article was covering that story and I could say look there there are very you know influential a small minority of research that are beginning to buy this sort of counter argument this alternative hypothesis and the cover was a the greasiest porterhouse steak picture they could find with a pat of melted butter on it and it said what if fat doesn't make you fat and the uproar was unbelievable. I mean, it was almost hard. It was in, I knew this was going to be the most controversial article they'd ever run since a friend of mine had done an article 10 years earlier arguing that recycling is a complete waste of money and none of us should be doing it. I still recycle, but I still wonder if he was right. Anyway, I knew it was going to be controversial. Was, I got just, it was like, I don't know if you ever played football. There are these drills you do in football, like these gauntlets where you run through and everybody's got these huge pads and they're yeah. pummeling you as right. you go. And, you know, by the time you get through the line, it's like, well, nowadays they probably don't do it anymore because of the concussion danger. But um, that's what it felt like. It spread out over the course. Um, I lost a few friends over it. I had a few friends in the science journalism world who had written articles on obesity and hadn't at all question the conventional wisdom. And so one of my close friends in journalism accused me of writing this article just to get a big book deal, basically making it up to get a big book deal. And then wrote an article in, I think it was Newsweek, where it was the headline was, it's not the carbs, stupid, which was just aimed directly at me. The Washington Post uh, nutrition journalist did a takedown of me because she had been going after um, blaming everything on dietary fat. It was interesting. And every time, you know, when the book came out, the sort of same thing happened to a slightly lesser degree. And there are people just assume I'm a quack. Although actually I've been told if you're not a doctor, you can't actually be a quack. So I think the technical term might be whack job. Right. You know, so then these are some of the interviews you've seen. There was a sort of legendary Joe Rogan episode that was supposed to be a debate and was two and a half excruciatingly painful hours of this young, you know, PhD uh, going after me and his uh, 
Luckily, he was so obnoxious, he got most of the heat from it. But I came away from it thinking, wow, I got to figure out how to do these debates better. So it's been interesting. You know, there's a sort of momentary feeling like you've been kicked in the head. Mm-hmm. And then a day to, you know, the way I think of it is almost literally screwing your head back on right. Like this is, you know, this is what the business is. You cannot go after the conventional wisdom and what the establishment believes without they're not going to give it up because if they embrace, if they accept that they're wrong, they they have to accept they've always been wrong. And mm-hmm. it's not like we're arguing subtleties here; we're arguing profound, profound concepts. So, you're right. Yeah, if, if they admit they're wrong, that means people have died because of their wrongness, and that's a tough pill to swallow. I had a friend in Los Angeles, a screenwriter. Actually, it's interesting. We. Somehow our friendship fell out in part because he insisted that white bread was healthy. Probably the only friend I've had where we had this conflict and that he could never go on a low carb or keto diet because of how much he's, you know, uh, embraces white bread. And he weigh, I heard he weighs about 260 pounds now. He used to say that if I'm wrong, I'm going to have to flee to Argentina with all the others who are responsible for the deaths of millions. And uh, on some level, you know, that's a thing. If I'm wrong, people are dying because of me. If you're wrong, people are dying because of you. Uh, If they're wrong, people have died because of them. And nobody can accept that. None of us. Yeah, that's a good point. I did see the interview on Rogan, and uh, I've always been of the philosophy that when there is a discussion or a debate or whatever you want to call it, the person who gets emotionally upset and starts attacking the other person has lost the conversation right off the bat. You were very calm, cool, and collected, and you were just presenting facts, and you were kind of just going back and forth. So that was tough to see somebody just you know uh, abuse verbally abuse you like that. But you know, I, I can tell how convicted you are in your research. And just the way you conduct yourself, that when you're convicted, it's the person with most conviction that wins these type of conversations. So I I appreciate you even taking those arrows and continuing to get out there and get the message out there with all of the arrows you might be taking at the same time. And it does, you know, it gives your life meaning. I joke that Don Quixote is my role model now, (laughs) you know, but you have to remember that tilting at windmills, not only is it painful, but that windmills come around and smack you on the ass on the way by, even if if they don't knock you off the horse the first time. So it's sort of, but it gives, you know, my friends from college, my peers are like retired, their kids are grown or trying to figure out how to spend their time. Should it be golf or, you know, should they take up a new hobby like sailing? And I'm, I'm doing this. And because my kids are only 11 and 15 and I hope to be, if they ever get off Fortnite, I might put them through college someday. You know, it's like seven days a week. So it gives, you know, but it's helping people. Yeah. Including rewarding. Yeah. It's rewarding. It's, I can't say otherwise. You know, and um, I was going to say that when you just know that you know that you know, like you obviously clearly do, then when somebody tells you, hey, white bread is good for you or uh, carbs do matter, our body, it's our primary fuel source it's like somebody going up to you gary and saying hey your blue hair looks stupid it looks ridiculous why do you have blue hair you just look at that person like like they're crazy because you know for a fact that you don't have blue hair so to me it's the equivalent when somebody starts saying these things that are nonsense to the facts that we know to be true i I the only thing the thing i i have these debates discussions with 
one of my colleagues at the Nutrition Science Initiative, which is this not-for-profit that I co-founded, one of my colleagues who I think was the best scientist in the field, and I talked about his work at the end of Good Calories, Bad Calories, my first book, um, you know, about four years after that book came out, he retired, and then we got to hire him at NUSI. And we have this discussion all the time where I say, well, yeah, I'm convinced I'm right, but every quack is convinced he's right. That's the defining aspect of a quack, right? They're never skeptical about it. They're never, you know, and then he says, well, yeah, but the difference is we are right. And it's like, yeah, I think so. But that, <laughs> so you, there's this famous line uh, from Richard Feynman, the physicist that I quote in most of my books, which is the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Mm. So yeah, I'm convinced I'm right, but how do I know I'm not fooling myself? And then I'll, I'll tell you that the flip side. So, and this is some one reason why I wrote the case for keto. When we started this, when I started this in 1999, there were maybe a dozen physicians in the U.S. and Canada and maybe even around the world who were prescribing low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diets to their patients. And half of those people had written diet books. So like, you know, Mike and Mary Dan Eads and Protein Power and Atkins and, you know, a few others. And I don't know, maybe there were 20 of them. But today, my estimate is there's a few tens of thousands. Like there's a, my, my calibration, there's a Facebook group in Canada of women doctors on you know, low-carb, high-fat diets. These are the ones who are eating it themselves, not necessarily. And the, there's about, well, last time I looked, which is about six months ago, there were 4,000 women doctors in Canada eating this way. Wow. And they're all doing it. Because like all of us, they were getting heavy or they were getting, their blood sugar was getting out of control. And they, you know, we all go through the same thing. You try, you know, a low fat diet, you might try a vegetarian diet, you might try a vegan diet, you know, you try this diet book and that diet book. And you finally try, you know, when I did it, it was called Atkins. Now it's keto. And it works. It's just suddenly you become kind of effortlessly, not just leaner, but healthier. And you know you're healthier. You feel better. You have more energies. So they all go through that transformation, and then they prescribe it to their patients, and their patients get healthier. So one reason to believe we're right is because of what happened to you. And it happened to me to a lesser extent, and it happens to these, but at least for some portion of the population, we're clearly right. You know, and I've yet to get uh, email from anyone's next of kin. Right. And it's been about 20 years now saying, you know, the lawyer of the next of kin saying they went on keto and, you know, died of a heart attack a week later. And what's interesting is there should have been just by chance people who did so. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, people would have had a heart attack next Wednesday anyway. But on Saturday, they start keto and then they have the heart attack on Wednesday and it looks to everyone in the family that keto killed them. Mm-hmm. Or COVID, or COVID got them. Or COVID, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it depends whether or not they've had their blood tested that week. They <laughs> right. had a COVID test, boom. Um, anyway, so that's a sort of, you know, there is reason. Then the question is, are there other people who are just as right? 
to like the vegetarian vegan community, blaming it on animal products, it being metabolic diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, maybe cancer, Alzheimer's, all the major chronic diseases. And um, I don't think so, but they do. Yeah, they do. But you know what? That's the true test, what you shared. You apply it on yourself. What does your lab work look like? How do you feel? And uh, when I see it, when I start educating my community and I see them improve, I know that I know that I know it's working because that's that's the evidence for it. So you mentioned the case for keto. Why did you want to make a case for keto? Why did you start this book? Yeah, my books have kind of been a progression. So the first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, that was a result of, say, seven years of research between the two articles that preceded the book advance or the three articles and then the five years post-advance. That's a tome. I'm really proud of that book. I mean, I think it's an important book and a good book. And I was able to go back and basically re-report the science of nutrition, obesity, chronic disease. And the internet had made it possible for me to get all the primary sources. I had students all around the country whose job was to just take the references I sent them and go to the local library, med school libraries and copy the articles and ship them back to me. Back then, you couldn't download everything. Now you can. And that book is about, uh, I don't know, 500 plus pages with 160 pages of bibliography and endnotes. And I think it lays it all out there, most of the major arguments, and sort of gave a lot of people in this country, around the world, the sort of background they needed to trust what we were saying so they could go to the next step, which is try it on yourself and see what happens. But that book was a difficult read. So Why We Get Fat, which was published in 2011, was the sort of airplane reading version. I had people who wrote to me after they read Good Calories, Bad Calories and said, this book changed my life. It's remarkable, but could you please write one that like my husband could read or my father could read or my doctor could read. <laughs> I had doctors writing me saying, could you write one that my patients could read? Right. So Why We Get Fat was that book. And I say as much in the introduction, you know, I'm writing this book for all those people who couldn't get through the first one um, or wouldn't try. And I still think the first one is worth reading. So when I send my books to researchers or doctors, which I often do, I'll say, look, you know, it's up to you which one you want to read first. If you read good calories, bad calories, you may not need to read why we get fat, but you may want to do it anyway. And if you read either one, you may not want to read the other. But anyway, the argument I'm making and other people have now and a lot of people are making is that carbohydrates are the refined grains and sugars maybe starchy vegetables are the primary ills of modern society. They are why you got obese. They are what causes heart disease, diabetes. But the counter argument was always, hey, dude, if you're blaming it on carbs, what about Southeast Asia? Okay, here's, you know, a billion, five billion people, whatever the number is, who live primarily on rice, originally brown rice and white rice and wheat. Why are and don't they have the highest obesity and diabetes rates in the world? The probable answer to that was that they were low sugar consumers. And there was always something special about sugar. It's funny, even now I'm, I'm doing the research for a book on diabetes specifically. And, you know, back 100 
pre-insulin discovered 199 years ago, the treatment for diabetes was a carbohydrate-restricted diet. It was called an animal diet, and you just didn't eat carbs. You ate animal products and green leafy vegetables. It was Atkins or keto. Keto, yep. One of the best ways to know if keto is working for you or against you is to look at your blood glucose levels. The body wants one to two teaspoons of glucose in the bloodstream at all times. Anything more than that is considered a toxic state. So what happens is the beta cells in your pancreas are activated to produce insulin to shuttle the excess glucose out of the bloodstream into your cells. Now, if this happens from time to time, no big deal. The body is well-equipped to handle it. But when this happens chronically, we develop insulin resistance and eventually type 2 diabetes. What if there was a way to look at your blood glucose levels without having to prick your fingers over and over again? Well, there is a way. CGMs, continuous glucose monitors. This is the best biohacking device you will ever wear. I've worn CGMs for months and it gave me such incredible data on what food, stress, exercise, lifestyle is doing to my glucose levels. The better we could optimize our glucose, the longer we're going to live, the more inflammation we're going to reduce, and the healthier we're going to feel. My go-to for CGMs is from NutriSense. I love NutriSense because not only is their product accurate, their app is amazing, and it has all of your data in one place, and you get to work one-on-one with a registered dietitian to understand your own personal health data. For example, the question I get asked all the time, does coffee break my intermittent fast? I always say, maybe. What is it doing to your glucose? And if you test your glucose and see there's a high rise in that glucose from the cup of coffee, then I think it's fair to say some of the benefits of fasting is becoming negated. Not only that, there's a whole bunch of keto foods that you might have a sensitivity to creating a glucose response. That's where CGMs come into play. If you're serious about taking your keto and intermittent fasting results to another level and you want to bypass all of the roadblocks to getting a CGM, then NutriSense is where it's at. I encourage every single one of you to get a CGM from NutriSense. If you go to NutriSense.io slash KETOCAMP and use the coupon code BEN30, that is BEN30, you will receive $30 off any subscription to their CGM programs. Once you have this data, it's going to help you further customize your keto approach so you could get exceptional results. Head to NutriSense.io slash KetoCamp. Use Ben30 at checkout to get $30 off any subscription with their CGM programs. We will also drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. I was just reading, there was a German, uh, famous German diabetes authority named Carl von Norden who pioneered something called the oatmeal cure, which everybody said, well, that shows you could eat carbs too. And I was explaining why the oatmeal cure, even he saw it as just a temporary sort of disruption for people with serious cases. And he, he fed them what he called uh, vegetable days prior to the oatmeal, three days of oatmeal and butter. The vegetable days were... They're called vegetable days, but he says green vegetables with, uh, you know, just bacon, butter, or eggs. <laughs> so he did three days of that and then three days of the oatmeal? Yeah, except the oatmeal was four times a day with an equal amount of butter. Interesting. So you're getting like, I think it was possible, you know, each meal is like a 
you know, bowl of oatmeal with the, the, the most of the calories are coming from the butter. If it's equal parts butter and oatmeal, you know, the butter is twice as dense. So they had some butter with, they had butter with a little bit of oatmeal. Exactly. Yeah. So, but it was called the oatmeal. Anyway, so the, I don't even know what the point was anymore. Um, you were talking about insulin 99 years ago, and then they were giving them a keto diet back then, and then you made this point. Uh, You're writing a new book on diabetes. Oh, okay, anyway, so the point is even back then, even the people who were pushing, so after insulin is discovered, now you need to feed people carbs to balance out the insulin. Mm. So diabetes goes from being a carbohydrate intolerance disorder to a insulin deficiency disorder in which the treatment is insulin and carbohydrates. And that's how we've thought of it ever since. And so diabetics who can't metabolize insulin, carbohydrates are still told to eat a significant amount of carbohydrates to make sure the insulin doesn't give them low blood sugar. Physicians start arguing that they say their patients don't want to give up carbs. They don't want to listen to us. This is by 1925, they want to they want to eat their carbs. So we're going to let them eat their carbs. We're just going to give them more insulin. This is called a liberal carbohydrate diet. But even those guys would say you could eat more carbs, don't eat sweets. There was always don't eat sweets. They never explained why. Mm. But it was sort of you can eat potatoes, you can eat oatmeal, don't eat sweets. And so the sugar book in 2016, I published the case against sugar, which was explaining the sugar science, what made sugar different from all these other books, all these other carbs, why is sugar, why does it have to be considered unique? And is it arguably the sort of primary cause of obesity and diabetes? So you add sugar and sugary beverages specifically to any diet around the world, whether it's, you know, the Okinawans eating their sweet potatoes or the Hunza in the Himalayans living on, you know, mostly wild grains or the Maasai in Africa living on the blood, meat, milk of the cattle they herd. And you add, give them Coca-Cola and they end up obese and diabetic and then they pass it down from generation to generation. So I was making that argument with the sugar book. And then by this time, Keto had started to catch on. It had gone from our 10, 20 doctors to tens of thousands. And it just seemed there was still a lot of very confused thinking about the logic. I mean, primarily not so much on the, the physicians prescribing it and folks like you, but the, the diet world around it the way the medical community discussed it, and then a lot of sort of the knee-jerk things. So I wanted to interview physicians who had made this conversion and were now prescribing keto to their clients, their patients. And I wanted to understand what their challenges were as doctors and what the challenges are to the patient, the person who's trying keto for the first time who hears your show. And I wanted to be able to sort of base it in more than just what I get through email. So I interviewed about 120 odd physicians around the world, um, another 20 dietitians, chiropractors, one dentist, some very smart people. So there were things they told me that I was kind of embarrassed I hadn't thought of myself. For example, can you share one of, one of them? Well, there, was a, uh, there is a physician, South African physician working in um, 
a small town just outside of Vancouver who said, um, for the past 50 years, we've been told to prescribe diet by hypothesis. So the hypothesis is, this is Martin Andreas, his name, the hypothesis is that if you eat this low-fat diet, you will not get heart disease. Mm-hmm. So the doctor has no idea if it's going to work. If he has no idea if it's working. He, he tells the patient to eat that way. If the patient starts eating that way, you have no idea whether it's increasing your risk of heart disease or decreasing it. The universe does not give us that information. So if the patient then lives for 40 or 50 years and has a heart attack, you don't know. The doctor doesn't know, and the patient doesn't know whether they had the heart attack 10 years later than they would have or 10 years earlier than they would have. Did it lengthen their life? or shorten their life. There's no way to know. But that's the basis by which patients are told to eat the Mediterranean diet or a DASH diet or a low-fat diet. That's the idea that Ornish prescribes. The flip side, this guy said, is prescribing diet by clinical experience. So I ate this way and I lost 50 pounds and my blood markers got better and my blood pressure went down and my blood sugar got under control and I gave it to my patients, and the same thing happened to them. And I can prescribe it to a patient and watch that patient get healthy. So in theory, if we're going by the hypothesis, right, this is a high-fat, high-saturated-fat diet. This is going to shorten their life. But what we observe is they get healthy. The exact opposite the exact opposite. So I'm going to prescribe diets by my experience, by my observation, and stop prescribing this diet by hypothesis. Because the other thing that happens is when we put people on the low-fat diet, we watch their blood pressure eventually rises, their weight goes up, all these other bad things happen. In theory, they're going to live longer than they would have. Again, we don't know if they do or not. Yeah. So to me, that was sort of revelatory. And I talk about in the book, I give Martin credit, but I also say, you know, just from my own perspective, I spent the 90s on a low-fat, mostly plant diet. I said I lived in Los Angeles. That's how we ate in LA. How how did you feel on that? I mean, I felt fine in the sense that I didn't know any differently. I was in my 30s. I was an athlete. LA was a wonderful place to live in your 30s. If Yeah, I had a little trouble finding serious women to get involved with, but then I wasn't actually looking for the serious women. So that's another. So, yeah, I felt fine, but I was gaining two pounds a year, Hmm. which I thought was just inevitable. I was working out an hour a day. This is the conversion experience we all sort of go through. I was working out an hour a day because that's what you do in L.A. You don't sit in cafes. You go to the gym or you go to the, you know, run on the beach or you rollerblade. I used to rollerblade up to Malibu and back, which is about five miles each way. Wow. So, you know, I felt fine, but I was getting heavier, and I thought it was inevitable. I'd been told I would get heavier once I turned 30, and it was happening. And then because so I was writing the this dietary fat story for science, And I was interviewing, because again, I was a freelancer, so I used to do multiple stories at once. I would interview the researchers together and sort of in parallel, because I could do that. And then I would write the story serially. So I was working on a story for the magazine Discover on the mathematics of the stock market. And I was interviewing an economist at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who 
we got to talking about he studies whether or not people make a lot of money in the stock market are smart or lucky. Hmm. You know, is it, which is actually a very difficult thing to find out. Like is Warren Buffett indeed brilliant or is he just the tail of the distribution of luck? Yeah, both. And perhaps both. So how do you do that? So we've got to talk, that's a scientific question. We we're talking about good science and bad science. So I started telling him about the dietary fat story. And he said, well, if you're writing about dietary fat, you have to try Atkins. So he had a collaborator at Warden whose father lost 200 pounds on Atkins. Wow. And he's uh, Asian American. And he said he lost 40 pounds, just basically giving up white rice. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll try it. I'll try anything. I wasn't married at the time. I didn't have children. If it killed me, my mother had passed away and my father was already in his 90s. Nobody was going to get too disappointed if I had a coronary. My cats. <laughs> anyway, so I, I went back to LA and I, there's a restaurant in LA, a um, chain of restaurants. I don't know if it's still there, probably called the Gaucho Grill, which is uh, Argentine restaurants. And it's a place where, you know, writers who don't make enough money can go and have meat. And I used to go with my friends and we'd get skinless chicken breasts and salad. And now we go and they get the skinless chicken breast in the salad. And I get this pepperoni and mozzarella melted appetizer followed by, you know, a big steak and a salad. And this is after I had eggs and bacon for breakfast. And I said, this is my health food for the next X number of months. Fun. And um, I dropped 25 pounds effortlessly. Mm. And I felt great. I actually stopped exercising because I used to exercise to burn calories to prevent myself from gaining any more weight than I was already gaining. Such a poor strategy, Gary. Well, I, that's what we all did. I know. You know, count up, get on the Stairmaster or run. I knew if I ran six miles, I could eat that day uh, without having to count my calories. So I'm doing this book on diabetes and I'm both type one and type two and type one diabetics, you know, they lose, they can't produce insulin. So they're often diagnosed after significant weight loss. And I'm talking to physicians again, who have type one diabetes and patients who have switched to low carb ketogenic diets. And so basically they, they can't produce insulin. So the weight drops off them, just goes away. And the, you probably experience this when you're eating the ketogenic diet, you're minimizing your insulin secretion. Mm -hmm. So you could still produce it. You're not sick, but you're minimizing it. And you've this phenomena of the excess weight just kind of going away is a remarkable one to experience. And then the, of course, the medical community says it's because you're eating less. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, because they're not really bothering to think this through. They're just thinking, what knee-jerk response could I have to demonstrate that I was right all along? Right, exactly. So I have a question. How many doctors did you interview in this book, did you say? A hundred and what? Well, I think the total count when I ended up listing them at the back was around 140. And I'm guessing about 120 of them were physicians. So out of the 140 or so people that you interviewed who uh, implemented a ketogenic lifestyle approach to themselves and to their patients and clients, do you, did you ask them the question if they recommend being in ketosis long term? 
Uh, were they fans of that? Was 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 there like a mixed bag? Like, what were the thoughts on that? I did ask them all that question, and the truth is, almost exclusively, they did not care. Hmm. That wasn't their goal. Because remember, there these are mostly internal medicine docs and family medicine docs, and so what they're dealing with are waiting rooms that are filling up with obese and diabetic patients, and they want to fix them. They want to make them healthy. They went into med school to make people healthy, not to manage chronic diseases. And right. what they've been doing is managing chronic diseases and writing prescriptions. So now they want to make them healthy. So, and, and that was fascinating because I really, you know, I have a lot of discussions with Steve Finney, particularly about Steve has some very strong feelings. He's, you know, did some of the original work, uh, research on ketogenic diets and physical activity. And he feels strongly about the need for ketosis. They just wanted to get their patients off carbs. Got One it. of them, you know, and if they can get them off carbs and they got healthier, then that's all they cared. They didn't want to complicate things. They didn't want to get them focusing on measuring ketones and are they in ketosis enough. And they were also worried about some patients that think that they're doing keto when they're drinking bulletproof coffee every day. Mm-hmm. And now they're pumping so much fat into them that they're staying heavy, even though they're eating virtually no carbs. So their goal was, let's get them off the carbs. And then if it wasn't helping, if they weren't getting healthier, or they weren't getting leaner, some people are just, you know, as lean as they're going to get. They through dietary modifications. Most people will lose a significant amount of weight. But if they weren't getting healthier, if their lipid profiles weren't improving, then they would use ketosis basically as a monitor of dietary compliance. They say they're following the diet. Let's see if they're in ketosis. Yeah, also interesting. Well, the way that I teach it, I'm actually writing a book called Keto Flex, which I think it's great to utilize keto and I do myself, my company's Keto Camp, but I don't teach it long term. I think it's a healthy to reset the metabolism, keep insulin low. And then I start doing what I call keto flexing. You could call it carb flexing. So I was interested in that answer and it makes sense. You know, their priority is just to get people healthy and they don't care if they're going off one day or two days. So that's, that was well, a good answer. Funny. They're not doing, you know, what sort of a lot of people do in our world. You may be doing, they're not trying to they don't really have most of the time to sort of maximize the benefit for a particular patient where you might, it's interesting, this oatmeal cure I had mentioned in diabetes. So here the therapy is don't eat carbs, and eat a lot of fat. But if that's not helping enough, let's try giving you three days of oatmeal with a lot of fat. Yeah, right. And that might sort of somehow fix things. They didn't know why. Certainly didn't work with everyone. I said, sometimes it makes things worse, but it might, you know, you kick the pancreas, maybe you'll get a beneficial response. So, and a lot of what I talk about is this sort of self-experimentation. A lot of this is, you know, the reason why, you know, you, I want people to understand it, understand what the various options are, and then you can experiment. You know, you're experimenting the first time just by getting rid of the carbs, but now you see, how did that work? Right. You know, and are there still things that need to be fixed? Over the years, I've had to get off dairy. Mm-hmm. I recently gave up nuts. I was pissed. I, had, I was getting a <laughs> rash on the side of my face, you know, 
63 years old. I don't want a rash on the side yeah. of my face. Plus, I'm supposed to be a health guru. <laughs> so I start experimenting. It's worse at night than it is in the morning. So I'm thinking it's something I'm eating during the day. And I had recently, I don't eat breakfast anymore. So I was eating probably a thousand calories of nuts between lunch and dinner, which was fine with me because I wasn't getting heavy. Almonds, because I think of them as healthy, although, but then I started thinking maybe it's the almonds, maybe it's the polyunsaturated fats in the almonds. So I switched the almonds for, um, Christ, the Hawaiian nuts, macadamia, macadamia nuts, nuts yeah. so salted macadamia nuts, what could be better. Right. Um, they didn't go away. So then I gave up the nuts and switched those for pork rinds. And lo and behold, not only did it go away, I lost about 10 pounds. And I suddenly looked like more cut than I've looked since I was in college playing football. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder if it's a combination of some of the oxalates or anti-nutrients, or maybe you're just sensitive to it. But I have no idea. But yeah. this is the kind of thing, it's just, you say, could this be diet? Could this be related? I'm okay, I'm still 15 pounds heavier than I want to be. Uh -huh. And often people probably, can I have dairy then, you know? Can I? And I say, well, if you're 15 pounds heavier, then see what life is like without dairy. Right. And and some of the safer options to cow dairy is maybe you could switch to like a sheep or a goat, which I've seen most people do better on. What I teach is actually the first 30 days in doing keto to eliminate dairy altogether, like you just suggested, because I do see the benefit uh, in many people who do that. I would be remiss if I didn't finish up this awesome conversation talking about the two battles going on out there in the health space. You have one camp, no pun intended, but you have one camp who talks about, hey, if you want to lose weight, it's simple. It's, you know, it's a math equation, calories in, calories out. Then you have the other camp who says, you know, it's a little bit more complex. There's hormones, there are other things involved. So I know where you stand, which is obviously not the calories in versus calories out, but you do such a phenomenal job at breaking all down. So why... Are there nutritionists and dietitians and doctors still teaching this? And why is it so wrong? Okay. And it's interesting because I, I had an article that I was hoping to publish in the New York Times Magazine on this subject that I submitted on March 14th. Right, right after lockdown. And it sat there for 10 months and I had been paid for it. And now 10 months later, the world is a different place and they don't want to risk running this article because I'm trying to place it elsewhere, but it's explaining that. And this is where you know, I take a historical perspective. It's something I learned in physics when I was writing about physics. If you want to know whether something's true or not, it helps to know why people ever believed it before they taught it to you. So you go back in time, and it turns out that 1920s, there's a very active debate about the cause of obesity. There's only about a dozen doctors in the world thinking about it, because it's a small medical research community that's concerned with obesity. But some of them think it's eating too much, which seems pretty natural, and some of them think it's clearly a hormonal defect. Like men and women fatten differently. Women fatten below the waist, men fatten above the waist. That's all sex hormones. You know, if sex hormones are involved, then, you know, people who are overweight and obese often say, look, it doesn't matter how much I eat. I mean, I could starve myself and I'll lose 10 or 20 of the 70 or 80 pounds I have to lose, but I'm starving all the time. It's a no-win situation. So to these other doctors, it was clearly a hormonal disorder, and they just hadn't figured out which hormone yet. Mm -hmm. And the hormonal 
argument was mostly German and Austrians, and they were doing the best medical research in the year. The U.S. was like a, in the world, the U.S. was a backwater in medical research until post-World War II. It's like, it's just not what we did. Actually, until about the 1910, doctors didn't need a college degree to go to med school. They just had to graduate from high school. <laughs> and they were not, if you'll pardon the expression, brain surgeons. Anyway, so... This theory goes away in part because World War II comes and the German-Austrians vanish. They have that school evaporates. And the American doctors pushing all about calories. There's one guy in particular at the University of Michigan who says he's proven that it's just about how much people eat. Mm-hmm. And that just becomes the reality. That becomes what people believe. And it seems obvious that fat people eat too much. So this is what I'm going to believe. Um, And the hormonal defect idea becomes an excuse for why people with obesity might not want to do what thin people do naturally, right? Which is eat in moderation and exercise. And this is what I documented in my first book. I hope to write a book just about this history because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, please do it. But the idea that people get fat because they eat too much is a thin person's way of thinking about obesity. Mm. So if a lean person thinks, you know, I stay lean and I don't eat too much, which is tautological, logical term for it, but I, I don't eat a lot and I stay lean and I run marathons and I stay lean. Therefore, if everyone didn't eat too much, and ran marathons, they'd be lean too. And if you're not lean, that means you eat too much. It seems logically perfect, but it's it's all a, what's called a tautology. So, you know, what I'm trying to get across and what I've done in my books is by the 1960s, we knew what hormones regulated fat accumulation in the human body, which is uh, insulin, the same hormone that's dysfunctional in diabetes, tells your fat to store calories as fat. Mm-hmm. And that's textbook science. And by the end of the 1960s, it was clear that uh, people who are obese tend to be insulin resistant, which means their insulin levels are elevated all the time. And there were very good, some of the most well-respected researchers in medicine were suggesting that elevated insulin caused fat accumulation. And then that Elevated insulin was also became type 2 diabetes, but the fat accumulation was a, a result of the insulin, not the cause of it. Right. And then we bought into this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. And that means we got to eat a lot of carbohydrates. And that became the sort of defining paradigm in nutrition. And anything else that implicated hormones or carbs or insulin and fat accumulation had to go away and they just, and I, again, I documented this in good calories, bad calories, a half dozen researchers, physicians ran the field of obesity research in the seventies and they all knew Atkins and they didn't like him. Right. And they all insisted they knew more about obesity than anyone. And they knew nothing about obesity. They hadn't read the literature. They hadn't studied the endocrinology, the hormones. So anyway, so that's it. If you look at it from an endocrine perspective, the hormone insulin is driving fat accumulation, pretty much independent of how much you eat. And carbohydrate content of the diet is going to determine your insulin levels. Protein also stimulates insulin, but for the most part, it's going to come from the carbs. And this idea that you get fat, gets calories in, calories out, that's just 
it's the way thin people think about it. And it's just that, you know, it's enough, right? It's enough. And, and protein can stimulate insulin, but it's a, it's a phase two response. And also if you're in ketosis and you have protein and some of that is converted into glucose, you're just going to replenish your glycogen stores, which were already low because you're in ketosis. So it's not going to be causing you to store fat. So well, that's what, you know, my purse, I didn't write this in any of the books because it's one level of speculation too far for my taste, but I, feel like the whole insulin, glucagon, growth hormone axis evolved to deal with the protein content of the diet. Mm. Okay, because you, know, you eat carbs, you stimulate insulin, which tells your fat tissue to store fat and your lean tissue to burn the carbs. You eat protein, you stimulate insulin and glucagon and growth hormone. Mm -hmm. So it's an entirely different and much more textured hormonal signal. And it's not just store fat, burn carbs. It's, you know, use the protein for tissue repair, grow the cells, use right. the fat and the carbs for fuel as necessary. Um, so I feel like that system evolved to deal with protein and it could do it until you get really metabolically disrupted, which, you know, severe obesity or diabetes, then you have to, um, your type one diabetics are interesting because they have to, if they follow low carb diets, like they follow Dr. Bernstein's approach, they learn they have to now dose for protein. Because mm -hmm. if they're eating carbs in the diet, the protein just gets lost. You know, it's irrelevant. But if you're not eating carbs, then you have to dose a little bit for the protein if you want to keep your blood sugar really tightly controlled. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, Gary, where is the best place for the keto campers to go order the case for keto? Well, regrettably nowadays, I mean, if your local bookstores are open, <laughs> do it. In Florida, they are right now. So if you're in Florida, they're open. Yeah. Okay, so do it. You know, support your local bookstores. If they're independent, even better. If not, Amazon. Yeah, we'll put the Amazon link down below for you. Where else do you want to send them to check out more of your work? Uh, well, my website is GaryTalbs.com. Regrettably, I do not keep it up enough. I tweet at, at GaryTalbs. I don't do that enough either. And uh, the books and hopefully uh, this article that I told you about will find a home. The one on the... Calories in, calories out. Yeah, the energy balance mistake. Oh, great. This is, if we have a minute, so sort of the revelation. You do this research, and sometimes, again, I say I have these ideas that I didn't realize. Um, and you saw this, the Rogan debate. Uh -huh. Why do we differ? I, you know, sometimes I like this kid, even though he clearly does not like me. <laughs> and I keep thinking, why do we differ so much on how we think about this? And what I realized in doing the research for the Times Magazine article that will never run in the Times Magazine once this one University of Michigan researcher said, it's all about how much you eat, the research community decided that their job, the researchers who thought of themselves as studying obesity, particularly in animal models, thought it was their job to figure out why animals that become obese eat so much. So they stopped actually studying obesity, and they started studying what might trigger the brain to regulate appetite. And that could be their hypothesis was that's dysregulated obesity and then people get fat because they eat too much. So since the end of the Second World War, this, these people have not been studying obesity. They think they are, 
But what they're studying is appetite regulation in the brain. So they, mm -hmm. they don't care at all about fat accumulation regulation in the body because that's not what they study. If you ask them, for instance, when I was young, why did I get fat and my brother didn't? They can't answer that question because that's not what they're studying. Right. But if I ask them what genes regulate hunger and satiety in the leptin deficient mouse, that they can tell me because mm -hmm. that's what they study. So it's sort of, it's an inch. It's a, hopefully I'll get this published. Yeah, I know you will. I know you will. I look forward to that. But Gary, I want to acknowledge you for the work that you've been doing over the years. You've been a huge uh, inspiration to me. I love the work that you do. This book is right up my alley being all about keto. I'm going to create a lot of content from your book. Thank you for what you're doing and keep showing up in this world and I support your mission. Okay, thank you, Ben. It's been fun. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that amazing discussion with Gary Tobbs. I encourage you to go to the link in the notes of this podcast and order his book, The Case for Keto. It is a fantastic book. It takes this conversation to a deeper level. And go check out Gary Tobbs on Twitter and check out all the resources we put for you in the notes of this podcast. If you want to watch the video interview with Gary Tobbs, that could be found on our Keto Camp YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Keto Camp to check that out. A reminder to leave the Keto Camp podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show grow and reach more people. And when you do that honest rating and review, take a screenshot, send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com. And what we will do is send you a signed copy of my best-selling fasting book to the United States only. Well, thank you for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp podcast. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.